All right, here we go. Episode 20 of the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Without Hyman, it's just Tom. There's no Dick, there's no Hyman, it's just Tom. All right, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tom, Dick and Hyman show, episode 20. So glad you could join us. Uh, a little bit later on, we're going to be talking about a phenomenon called post-truth politics. This is a term I've seen a lot of people using lately. We're going to be exploring that, unpacking that, seeing what that's all about. And uh, just before that, we're going to be talking about a topic that's actually I'm quite into. It's uh, involving conspiracy theories, but more to the point, we're going to be talking about a little thing I call conspiratorial ideation. In just a moment stick around hopefully it's going to be a good one all right folks welcome to the tom dick and hyman show you might have noticed that a certain voice was missing from the intro there and that is of course hyman he could not be here he's a lazy bum who uh, can't commit to anything no not really he's just a uh, working class slug that just He's on a zero hours contract, basically, and he's he's got to take work as and when he can get it. Yeah, fuck him. He, he's not here. And it's just me on my own. I'm feeling kind of lonely. I'm in, I'm in the Brexit bunker on my own. You know, I haven't left it in over a month. And it's getting kind of scary. I still do not know what is going on with Brexit. I still do not entirely know what Brexit means. I looked it up in a dictionary and it just said Brexit. And um, that was a shit joke. And, uh, like I said, I'm, on, I'm here on my own. It's feeling kind of weird to try and deal with those feelings of weirdness. I am just getting quite heavily drunk, a little bit of Dutch courage, a little bit of JD and Coke, my usual. Not because I want to, because I have to. As stated in the intro, uh, we're going to be talking about a thing called conspiratorial ideation and how the internet, once again, you all thought it was going to bring you salvation and liberation and all of you were completely wrong. The internet is ruining everything, but it's not really the internet's fault. It's kind of our fault. What does conspiratorial ideation mean, Tom? Glad you asked. It, in fact, is a really pretentious way of saying that tendency to seek out conspiracy theories for alternative explanations to what the uh, official story or official narrative is as pushed by the MSM, aka the mainstream media. Now, um, conspiracy theories, of course, they've been around for a long, 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 long time. What is relatively new is the fact that the world of psychology is actually looking into conspiracy theories, not in terms of whether or not they should be debunking them, but in terms of why do people believe in conspiracy theories why is there this tendency this propensity to go well you know what if that's what cnn said i'm believing the exact opposite and uh what's fueling psychologists actually looking into conspiracy theorists rather than conspiracy theories is the fact that there is a concern out there that conspiracy theories conspiratorial ideation is actually getting to the point where it's starting to harm democracy. It's starting to harm how society, a free, educated, or informed, really, society operates. And uh, there's serious concerns that the internet is actually fueling 
conspiratorial ideation. Now, um, it's not known, as I say, this is still a relatively new subject that academia is actually looking into. It's not known if the internet is actually fueling conspiratorial ideation, like it's making people think more in terms of looking to the conspiracy theory in order to answer, in order to explain what's going on in current affairs across the globe. Or, alternatively, is the internet, is it taking people who are already conspiracists, conspiracy theorists, and just connecting them together? I think the internet is most definitely a very, very useful tool when it comes to actually disseminating conspiracy theories. I mean, it's it's a tool for spreading pretty much anything. I mean, that's basically what the internet is. It, it's simply a tool for transferring data. That's basically it. information, if you will. When it comes to conspiracy theories, essentially what it is is spreading misinformation. And of course, something that we've talked about here quite a bit on the Tom, Dick and Hyman show is the, the nature of the internet. It demands, it commands that everything be done with this incredible speed, rapidity, just instantaneousness. It's all about just now, 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 now. Let me express my opinion. I just saw this. I just saw this on TV. And I'm going to tell you what my opinion of it is right now. I just saw this. And of course, there are some people out there who are, let's say, scrupulous. Some people like um, Alex Jones, Mark Dice, David Icke, Richard Gage. People out there who have used the internet to their advantage. They're taking full advantage of the fact that the internet allows them to respond to things instantaneously. So I, I recall the, uh, I think it was 2012, the Boston Marathon bombing. And I recall Alex Jones being on Twitter within less than an hour, I think it was. I think it was about, I think it was literally 58 minutes after the explosions occurred. Alex Jones was on Twitter letting everybody know not only did he think this was a false flag, he knew this was a false flag. He declared it a proven false flag operation less than an hour after the bombs went off the internet is what makes that possible for him so that he got his narrative out there first so i mean people like alex jones i have no real clue are they actually crazy or are they just amazingly opportunistic i mean one thing i do know is that conspiracy theorists or as i call them conspiracists just as a quick aside, the reason why I call conspiracy theorists conspiracists is that conspiracy theorists themselves actually get quite upset with anyone who they deem or get the feeling is not a true believer. The conspiracy theorists, they take offense when you call them conspiracy theorists. And so I say I can't remember when or where, but I came across the term conspiracist and I thought, okay. You don't want me calling you conspiracy theorists. I'll just call you conspiracist. And to be honest, I think conspiracist actually sounds its kind of a little bit worse. It's a little bit more sinister, really insidious, if you will. More on that later. So conspiracist disseminators, I have no clue if they're actually genuinely nuts or if they're just opportunistic. But the people who buy into conspiracy theories, the conspiracists, they are not necessarily crazy. They might be, but not necessarily and uh, the reason I say that is I don't want to, I wasn't crazy when I believed in conspiracy theories. I just wasn't really thinking in a very logical, I wasn't thinking in a very logical way and I wasn't employing critical thinking. I was actually, what I was doing really was I was allowing the conspiracy theorist disseminators, people like Alex Jones, Mark Dice, David Icke, Richard Gage. I was letting them think for me. And it's, uh, there's a little bit of a trick that these conspiracy disseminators 
There's a little trick they pull to get you. How is it that conspiracy theories, how are they even able to take root even to begin with? The primary answer to that question is that every single conspiracy theory has a tiny little nugget of truth at the root of the conspiracy theory. And what the conspiracy disseminators do is they take that little nugget of truth and they extrapolate, for lack of a better word, they extrapolate from there into wild, wild speculation. They tend to also pull not so much on your heartstrings, that obviously wouldn't be the right phrase, but they appeal to your biases. They know if you're, uh, if you've got anti-capitalist sentiments, they know to talk about the influence of the banks and how central banking is destroying your civilization. If you have anti-establishment leanings, they know how to take advantage of that. They know how to get that from you and then prey on it to convince you of their wacky, wild theories. And of course, as a foundation post-Nixon administration, everybody knows that actual conspiracies, as they're called, they do actually occur. I'm obviously referencing Watergate there of the Nixon administration. So the fact that actual conspiracies do occasionally occur lends credence to the conspiracy theories. Um, a prominent thing that I should have, prominent one, a uh, notable one is um, NSA wiretapping. Now, what I would be keen to point out about the NSA wiretapping is uh, that was a whistleblower. I believe it was an AT&T whistleblower that brought that to the mainstream media's attention and they let it be known to the public. And that's the point. Uh, conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, they've never actually uncovered a real conspiracy themselves. It's always a whistleblower, an investigative journalist. They're the people that uncover actual conspiracies. It's not the Alex Joneses of the world. It's like I say, it's not actually known conclusively if the internet is increasing the number of conspiracists out there. Personally, I would say, yeah, it probably has, I think, a watershed moment. Water, watershed. Sounding like Bill Burr here, kind of fittingly, I'm doing this podcast on mine. But the watershed moment, I think, in terms of the internet and conspiracy theories was 9-11 and a video on YouTube that came out, I think, in 2006. And uh, the story behind Loose Change is Dylan Avery wrote a screenplay about two college students who analysed all of the news footage about 9-11 that was captured by CNN, ABC. And these two students, it's written into the screenplay that they uncover a conspiracy, that 9-11 was an inside job. And Dylan Avery, he shot this out to all manner of different producers and directors and Hollywood studios. None of them wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And uh, then Dylan Avery, he realised the future of this project is to actually turn it into a fake documentary. Like, they had no idea that YouTube was going to be a massive platform. They had no idea that Loose Change was going to be the number one watch video on YouTube for a number of years. They didn't know that. They couldn't predict it. Of course, it explodes. They become e-famous. Point being, as soon as it got big, they obviously took that information on their about page down. Getting back to the point, I think the rise of YouTube, the fact that YouTube is an open platform, and it's such a massive platform, that it has definitely increased the number of people out there who have, like I say, that as I defined conspiratorial ideation, the propensity to appeal to conspiracy theories to explain current affairs, global events, what have you. And like I said, I believed in the 9-11 conspiracy theory. How did they get me? Interesting question. How, how do the conspiracy theory disseminators, how do they get you? Well, in terms of loose change, the way they got me was they appealed 
to a preconceived bias that I had. I bought into the romanticized, the Hollywoodized vision of America as just completely invulnerable, completely impenetrable. No country in the world could possibly attack America. No one. And then 9-11 happened, and I couldn't believe it. So Loose Change, it, it preyed upon my preconceived biases, and that's how the conspiracy theory disseminators, that's how they get you. You know, they're well-versed in what are compelling arguments, but not logically sound arguments. And, uh, they tend to be, like in my case with 9-11, just my own sense of incredulity. I was incredulous at how something like this could happen without it being explained by a conspiracy theory. So I was primed, I prepped myself for the conspiracy theory explanation. So why why are we sceptical of mainstream media journalists, but when it comes to just random bloggers and YouTubers, we're more than happy to kind of put our sense of disbelief to the side. And uh, I, think, I think the reason for that is we tend to view mainstream media journalists as being very rich, being connected. I mean, if they're not very rich, they're at the very least, they're connected to rich people. They've got the door is open for them. And we tend to view random bloggers and YouTubers as people as uh, kind of starving artists. They do it not for the money. They're doing it just to get the message out there. And that is actually, of course, nonsense. People like Alex Jones, David Icke, they've made a lot of money out of what they do. Like I say, they disseminate conspiracy theories for a living. I mean, Alex Jones, is he's made so much money. He built not only his own uh, mini mansion, I don't think it qualifies as a full-scale mansion, big enough is the point, but not only did he build his own house, his own mini mansion, he built his own recording studio, state-of-the-art. I don't know if you ever, if you ever want to smack your head against your own desk, go on Infowars.com and just start listening and start watching his videos. And the first thing you'll notice is that there's money behind this. That's because there's money in conspiracy theories. It can be a very lucrative business. So going back to the threat to democracy that conspiratorial ideation poses. And this, like I say, is why psychologists in academia, they're getting, they're taking notice of the impact conspiracy theories are having on public discourse, on political discourse. And um, I think... The biggest problem conspiratorial ideation poses is this, uh, it makes people jump to conclusions. Uh, there's a little thing in philosophy called, I say, oh God, could I sound like any more of a dick? There's a little, by the way, you plebs, there's a little thing in philosophy called Hanlon's Razor. And Hanlon's Razor is the axiom that you should not immediately attribute something to malice, to evil, when you could just as easily attribute it to incompetence or even just outright impotence. Conspiratorial ideation skips that part. It jumps to, well, it must have been malice. It must be. These people must be pure evil. When really, um, I mean, in the case of politicians, most politicians, no, they're actually, then they're, they're not evil. They're just a bit dumb. They're just a bit out of their depth. And um, most disappointingly of all, they live in a time where they just, they can't come up with any new ideas and their old ideas aren't working anymore. And they're just lost. It's resulting in the rise of the far right. Yay! Let's get fascism a go again. What the fuck could go wrong? My thinking on this is that this is just going to lead to a downward cycle. The more people look to conspiracy theories to explain what's happening in the world around them, the more difficult it makes it for politicians, the establishment, to actually come up with solutions. And what it does, though, is... They have to, they're answerable to the public. And so to explain away 
why they have no answers and why what they do doesn't really work and why they have this smell of corruption around them because they're not fixing any problem. They come up with conspiracy theories themselves and uh, they tend to just come up with conspiracy theories against their political opponents to explain away why things aren't working out great for them. And like I say, the more the more they panic, them naturally, the more they mess things up, which just in turn fuels more conspiratorial ideation. Like I say, it is a downward cycle. It's perpetuating. So I mentioned earlier the mainstream media, or as Sarah Palin calls it, the lamestream media. Yeah. The one thing you need to know about the mainstream media is they always lie. They never, ever tell the truth. Ever. And this isn't good. Um, and I think the reason... I would say the reason why it's not good is that lies, bullshit, conspiracy theories, they can be made up on the spot. It doesn't take any uh, manpower, doesn't take man hours, doesn't take time. You don't have to conduct an investigation of any kind. You can just make up bullshit on the spot and boom, there you go. Hey, psh, boom, instantaneous. Whereas to actually figure out the truth takes time. It takes, it takes some expertise takes knowledge journalists who have actually been journalists the vast majority of their adult life they've gone out there and experienced they've gone and lived in different countries in the world they've accrued they've paid their dues in a sense to be able to say i've experienced enough i've seen enough to have a sense of how things works and that lends credence to my reporting we don't trust that anymore what we trust are random random bloggers some people like we'll we'll trust a blog that doesn't even have a name attached to it. Like I say, it's it's because of this erroneous belief that the random bloggers on the internet and the YouTubers they don't make any money from it. They're telling me the truth because they don't have a financial incentive involved. That is simply not true. Get that out of your minds. It's important. And I think that's one way the internet has skewed our perspective. That idea that well, if someone on the internet is saying it, do you know what? That's actually probably more likely to be true because they haven't got corporate backers and corporate sponsors behind them. Also, part of being that instant gratification generation is we don't want little snippets. We don't want incremental explanations of what's going on. We want to know everything. We want to know all the ins and outs of everything. We want to know it now. Majorly beneficial to conspiracy theory disseminators entirely to their advantage the fact that we do that we demand all-encompassing answers instantaneously so andrew wakefield in a span of a few months he came up with false data to that suggested mmr vaccines cause autism now like i said the media they don't really know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to medicine and a lot of scientific breakthroughs they don't know what they're talking about so they get it wrong quite often and they took Andrew Wakefield's work to mean that all MMR vaccines cause autism. When he, he, of course, was only talking about one specific pharmaceutical company's product. And it, it's been years since that happened. And there have been literally hundreds of studies all across the globe looking into, is there actually any sort of relationship between MMR jabs, MMR vaccines and autism and there is none no evidence whatsoever in none of these studies and of course these studies took years to conduct andrew wakefield did his work in a matter of months but why why because he was bullshitting it was so much quicker and easier for him and like i say the fact that the internet demands these quick easy bite-sized answers it's going to spread conspiratorial ideation even more and more uh, this is this is an ethos we have to get out of. We have to understand to get truthful, accurate reporting takes time. 
takes time and effort. It takes man hours. Something else that's quite troubling when it comes to conspiratorial ideation. When someone um, lets themselves be open to conspiracy theories as an alternative explanation, once they've born into one conspiracy theory, a study was done, I think it might have been Oxford, it was a British university at the very least. A few years ago, there was a study into not conspiracy theories, conspiracists, conspiracy theorists, why they believe what they believe, to what extent do they believe it, etc. Uh, what this study uncovered is that as soon as someone is susceptible to one conspiracy theory, they become susceptible to believing all, almost all conspiracy theories. Once you buy into chemtrails, you are willing to buy into 9-11 being an inside job. Like I say, this study that showed that conspiracists, once they buy into one conspiracy theory, they'll buy into another and another and another. This makes it extremely difficult to eradicate conspiratorial ideation. It's self-reinforcing. It's so self-reinforcing that conspiracists tend to get to a point where they tell themselves, they have this mentality of the more people tell me I'm wrong and the more viciously people tell me I'm wrong, the more right I must be. I mean, that kind of circular logic, you can, you can justify believing in anything with that kind of logic. Now, a trend that I have noticed myself, when I was buying into 9-11 conspiracy theories, um, I was unemployed. I had a lot of free time. I also unfortunately had an internet connection. Uh, what that meant was I could get lost in the black hole that is the YouTube suggested videos along the, you know, the right hand side where they suggest all these different videos to you. And every, every new video you click on, there's a new list of suggestions and it never ends. You just keep going further and further into that black hole, into that abyss. And this is definitely a trend I've noticed amongst uh, relatively young, unemployed people who have a lot of free time in their hands and who unfortunately have an internet connection, is that they tend to start buying into conspiracy theories. You know these people, you'll see them on your Facebook pages and you'll know that they, uh, they've come upon hard times. They're down on their luck. They just got fired. They just got made redundant and they're struggling to find work. And suddenly uh, they're coming out in support of Donald Trump. They're talking about how Jews run everything. Start talking about how uh, there needs to be a, quote, paradigm shift in humanity. And uh, most alarming, they'll be trying to convince you you can cure cancer with just a watermelon. What's the solution, Tom? Good question. I don't fucking know. Um, well, uh, I have to, I've got a prophet something. I decided to talk about this. I would put forward it's on us collectively as a society. Sounding a bit communist here. Sorry for that. But we have to exercise more patience. We've got to snap out of this ethos that the internet Selling us on this idea of, hey, let me know, let me know what your opinion is. and Let me know now. Tell me now what your opinion is. Don't tell me in five minutes. Tell me now. That lack of patience. We've got to get rid of that. Something else that must always be kept in mind, especially when it comes to political discourse. As I mentioned earlier, Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice that which could just as easily be attributed to incompetence, to, uh, to impotence even. Don't jump the gun this is me i get it the irony is not lost on me take my advice do as i say not as i do anyway coming up in the next segment something that is connected i would say quite definitely i was going to say loosely but no i think it's definitely connected to conspiratorial ideation going to be talking about post-truth politics more on that in a sec Okay, 
Okay, and we're back for segment two. As I said in the intro, it's all about a phrase that has become very, very common, been popularised, I would say, since about 2010. That phrase is post-truth politics. What does this phrase mean? Well, it's in essence the notion that current political discourse is based on emotive arguments and it's basically largely disconnected from real-world effects of government policy. And uh, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. Austerity, the idea that you have to make severe cutbacks on public spending. All the empirical data suggests that austerity measures do not encourage economic growth, which is pretty much the reason why governments, central banks and IMFs, they suggest that you need austerity to encourage economic growth. And of course, austerity, (laughs) cutting back on public services, anyone who's read anything by Keynes, well, no, cutting back on public services is not how you kickstart your economy. And uh, I decided to uh, make this a topic on this episode. And I thought, I've not actually read anything about post-truth politics. So I quickly went on Amazon and I bought a book called Lies Incorporated, The World of Post-Truth Politics. And this is a book by, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ari Rabin Havd. The book basically describes the phenomenon of lies being able to pervade even after being thoroughly debunked. I mean, lies have always, always been put out there, but we live in the age of information where we have uh, things like PolitiFact, Snopes, these fact-checking websites. But even though these things exist, blatant lies are still easily, I'm going to say transmutable, I don't know if that's the right word, but still easily disseminated, still easily believed even though we live in the age of information. I think the earliest example that anybody would point to as the beginnings of post-truth politics emerging is the the tobacco industry back in the 50s and 60s, how they were adamant that tobacco smoking does not cause anything, any respiratory problems, nothing like lung cancer. No, 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 no. Tobacco smoking is not only entirely safe, it's actually somewhat healthy. You know how drinking a glass of wine counterintuitively helps you now if the tobacco industry um what they realized very very swiftly is that they didn't have the truth on their side the scientific evidence did not support their conclusion that ingesting small amounts of poison is actually beneficial to your health what they also realized is that they don't actually have to disprove what they realized is they didn't actually have to disprove the idea that tobacco smoke, smoking tobacco causes lung cancer. They realize all they have to do is obfuscate the matter. Now, a quick definition of the word obfuscate, as I be very condescending, is basically to obscure, to make it unclear what the truth is. It's uh, muddying the waters, if you will. One method of obscuring reality is to employ what I call in my OJ trial obsession, the Johnny Cochran defense, which goes as follows. <clears throat> they lying they ain't telling the truth yep that's it that's literally what you gotta do you just you have to accuse your opponents of lying you just what you gotta do is you gotta make sure the first one to get in there as long as you're the first one to accuse the other side of lying your accusations carry more weight and uh, this is what the tobacco companies did and if you want a recent example and i'll give you a recent example uh, quite famously in the run-up to the eu referendum go brexit was that michael go famously said well You know what? We've got the clip. The people who are arguing that we should get out are concerned to ensure that the working people of this country at last get a fair deal. I think the people in this country have had enough 
of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... We've had saying, enough of experts. Ha, with, with, from organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting people, it consistently wrong. Because these people, these people are the same ones who've got consistently wrong. This is proper What's Trump politics, isn't it? No, it's actually a faith in it's the... Oxbridge Trump. <laughs> yeah, so Michael Gove there. Infamous words that I think people will insist from now on until forever that Anything he speaks upon, any topic, any subject he talks about, his opinion is automatically discredited. So as we see there, that's a prime example of the Johnny Cochran defense. Oh, these these people on the know that said this is going to go horribly wrong? What the fuck did they know? Another example of post-truth politics would be uh, what's currently known as climate change denialism. When 97, I believe it, last time I checked, it was 97% of climatologists, not just scientists, believe that industry, man-made industry is having an impact on global average temperatures. Now, the oil industry, they have a vested interest in the idea of climate change not being real. Climate change being real means we've got to move away from fossil fuels. So um, if climate change is real, that means there's a lot of companies out there that are at threat. Not It's not a necessity that they will go out of business, but they're at threat. Their business model is without question going to have to change moving forward. And so a big driver of post-truth politics are, are corporations who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Their business model requires government doesn't suddenly change policy in any sort of drastic way. Now, elected public officials, our MPs, our representatives, they are accountable to us, the public, and they get their authority, their mandate, in other words, from us. And so these corporations that have this vested interest in maintaining the status quo, they have a vested interest in ensuring public opinion matches what is in their best interest. So not only do corporations have to persuade politicians, which is fairly easy, they also have to influence public opinion in such a way that the public will, in certain instances, actually vote against their own interests. Persuading politicians is incredibly easy comes in the form of a brown envelope with a bunch of cash inside it well i mean that's the old school way of doing it but these days it's uh, awarded contracts it's it's hiring you to be an executive that doesn't actually do anything now we know from world war ii a man named joseph goebbels that no matter how big the lie as long as you repeat it enough as long as you say it enough and day in day out keep repeating it the masses the public they'll believe it You've just got to keep saying it enough times until it becomes true. And there's this myth that the public looks to journalists, to the media, to separate fact from fiction. But like I said earlier in the uh, first segment, we actually not, that's not true at all. We look to the pundits and talking heads of the world to confirm our biases, to confirm our preconceived notions. We already have a bit of a sense of how things work in the world. And what we want is affirmation. We sure as shit don't want the talking head on TV to contradict us as unbearable. We're schizophrenic in that sense that we demand the fair and balanced impartial media when really that's not what we want. And, uh, it's actually to the advantage of these scrupulous multinational mega conglomerates that we're calling for this fair and balanced stance from the media, from the mainstream media, in the sense that 
the media now feels compelled to give equal weight to both sides of the argument, even when it's abundantly clear, even when they know themselves, one side is more truthful than the other. So what it is we're demanding of the media is to blur the line between information and misinformation, between factually accurate information and factually inaccurate information. They're now considered the same thing. And another drastic consequence of the fair and balanced schizophrenia is that journalists themselves feel discouraged from expressing their opinion, which possibly could come in the form of attacking someone who they disagree with. Bearing in mind, attacking someone, that can mean little more than actual just just disagreement. Merely disagreeing with someone, you are in a sense attacking them. And journalists, they feel discouraged from doing that because they know if they go after someone, just play it safe. Just go, just get... Just get the point and the counterpoint, treat them as equal, and then no one can say you were, you were, you were anything less than impartial. Make your life easier. Now, in the Western world, we live by a certain ethos that says a free, democratic, quote, functioning society cannot operate without the public being reliably informed. And post-truth politics drops a big fat nuke on that concept. It it blows it into smithereens. It's a bunker buster in the sense that the public are left in a, uh, the public are left in a place where they have literally no idea what is true and what isn't true. It's just, it's just point counterpoint and they don't have the means, they don't have the tools to decipher for themselves what ethos, what ideology is correct. And then there's also the fact that you can bombard the public with stat after stat after stat. And if you don't contextualize it, if you don't explain what these statistics mean, they just go over the public's head and totally include myself in that. And what this means is you're going to have very, very high levels of apathy. And we've witnessed this, haven't we? We have. Be honest. We've witnessed this. We've seen it with the migrant crisis in Europe. Just ugh. what it also leads to as the idea of post-truth politics starts to seep in and people start recognizing it and becoming cognizant of it is that they might start coming to the conclusion that actually do you know what? we should probably do away with democracy i mean the public are so unreliably informed they're so misinformed you cannot reasonably expect them to make what should ideally be the informed decision in regards to what is in their own best interests if you can't do that man why why Like, that's a prerequisite for democracy functioning, right? And if you can't have that, then what that means is democracy can't function. And so what I noticed post-Brexit, post-Michael Gove's announcement that the British public don't listen to experts anymore, is that we should get rid of democracy altogether. We should just abandon it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, flawed, it's a flawed concept. Now, of course, the problem with this idea is that the establishment elites, as they're called, this is entirely to their benefit. Why, why would they have any problem with this whatsoever? This idea that actually you know, we should probably get rid of democracy. They must love this. Now, like I said, the term, post-truth popul- the term post-truth politics has been popularized in the last couple of years. And that the danger with this is that the political establishment itself might cotton on to this fact. It might cotton on to the fact that people are becoming increasingly cynical and um, they're willing to accept the idea that if something is post-truth politics, then it means it's false. Anything that's labeled that is immediately declared false. Now, someone in the political establishment will pick up on that and they'll go, all right, do you know what I do now from now on? 
Anytime I have an opponent, someone whose ideology doesn't match up with mine, the way that I get what I want is I accuse them of engaging in post-truth politics. And it doesn't even really have to be politicians. It doesn't have to be elected representatives. You can take advantage of the notion of post-truth politics. Anyone can do it. So what is the answer to rectifying this problem? Well, I can't say I really know, but I think I've come up with four four key points that need to be addressed, which will at the very least be a start in terms of tackling this problem. Number one, get to a point where we understand that journalists are human beings. Every human being has a bias. Every human being has their own worldview, their own perspective of things which includes journalists and demanding of a human being, regardless of their job title, that they should be 100% impartial. It's unreasonable. So the correct response is to understand that, look, journalists have their own biases. That's okay, as long as they're upfront about it. Number two, limiting the amount of money in party politics, I would say, in terms of campaign contributions. This idea that corporate money is a person, it carries a certain personhood with it. Who the fuck made that decision? Get money out of politics. Number three, increased efforts in regards to upping the scientific literacy rate in our country, in America, in Western Europe. I think this is vital, especially, it's going to sound cliche, but when it comes to climate change, it's, it's kind of vital that maybe we actually get the masses to a point where they can understand not all of science, but at the very least scientific principles of peer review, the scientific method, empirical data over accusations of impropriety. You know, the former carries more weight than the latter. Unfortunately, we live at a time where people believe the opposite. Number four, this is a favourite of mine. If I ever become an MP, this is totally what I'm going to push for. Getting philosophy or, at the very least, a subject called critical thinking. Getting that taught as a mandatory subject in secondary school. Maybe not primary school, I forget having it in primary school, but in secondary school, philosophy should absolutely be taught as a core subject. Year seven onwards, yes. And additionally, in conjunction with that, statistical analysis. Like, forget trigonometry. No one no one in their life is ever going to need to know trigonometry. Not one point in my life have I ever had to know quadruple fucking equations. And I think statistical analysis should be made a core subject, not part of, in addition to mathematics. Will that get rid of post-truth politics altogether? No, it will not. Once a technology has been invented, you cannot disinvent it. Once it's there, it's there forever. You can mitigate it, though. You can suppress its effects. And one way of doing that is to have a public that isn't informed. Because let's face it, objectively, you're never, you're never ever going to get to a point where you could say the public is reliably informed. There's always going to be someone out there who's a nitpicker, if you will, who's going to be able to show that that isn't true. A postmodernist. However, what you can do is teach people how to take two conflicting pieces of information and in a reliable way show them how to differentiate between the two in terms of what is closer to the truth than the other. That's how we tackle this problem. That and getting corporate money out of politics. Alright ladies and gentlemen, that was episode 20 of the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Kind of weird, kind of weird doing it on my own. Hopefully you guys got something out of this. I mean, what we do here is like real surface level, to be honest. 
Hopefully you're mindful now of conspiratorial ideation. Hopefully you understand. It doesn't have to be major things. Yeah? I mean, it doesn't. You, you don't necessarily have to believe that the reason you didn't get that promotion is because your brain was infected by chemtrails. Promised you guys there was going to be an episode 20. I'm promising you now there's going to be an episode 21. I'm also promising you Hyman might be on that episode. I might have to get Tim or Cameron or someone else involved. Thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I am Tom the Volga of the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. No Dick, no Hyman this week. Hopefully next week.